show. This is a show about individual experience and personal identity. There may be times when folks use identifying words or phrases that don't feel right to you. That's part of what we're exploring here. Please listen with an open heart. And as always, I welcome your polite, engaged feedback, and I encourage you to continue the conversation in your life and with your community. Welcome to Query. Hey, Queeros, Cameron here. And just a reminder that starting September 21st, Rhea and I will be on tour nationwide in Seattle, Portland, San Francisco, San Diego, Phoenix, Dallas, Austin, Houston, New Orleans, Atlanta, Carborough, North Carolina, Philly, Washington, D.C., Brooklyn, Cleveland, Pontiac, Michigan, Minneapolis, Chicago, Madison, Portland, Maine, Boston, Providence, and then I will be in Denver. Now that that's out of the way, I want to welcome you back to the show. Today, I love this guest, Jen Richards, somebody I first uh, met really as a fan after seeing her amazing work in uh, the web series, Her Story. Um, This is a great conversation. I had the opportunity to work with Jen as an actor on Take My Wife season two. She's just a, a good person out there fighting uh, very hard for her space in Hollywood and as an actor. And I think you are gonna love this chat. So enjoy. but today is the day that the eclipse happened. So obviously everything's a little in line or out of line. Whatever the thing is that you're supposed to feel, I'm feeling it. Hardcore Perfect. right I'm, now. Yeah, me too. Like the, like, what, I don't know if it's, if I'm happier or sadder. My coffee tastes sweeter than usual. Like stuff is... It's intensified. Everything's intensified by, this is actually an eclipse season because we just had uh-huh. a lunar eclipse and this is a solar eclipse and they're significant ones, particularly for... American. So this it's really about your shadow side kind of coming out and dealing with all the things that we haven't been dealing with, good or bad. Wow. I feel that. I feel everything you're saying. And actually, will you do me a favor? Because I always have guests introduce themselves. Mm. Will you introduce yourself? You bet. Uh, my name is Jen Richards. I'm an um, actor, writer, person. LGBT person. <laughs> yeah. 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 You're those things. I'm those things and uh, other things. Yeah. I'm a, I actually know you uh, because I was such a fan of your work in oh. um, the show. Like, would call it a show? Web series. What, what web would you call series. it? Series? It's te- I mean, yeah, it's technically yeah. a web series. Or yeah. just say a series. Yeah. In, in the series, Her Story. Um, Her Story, which was. Emmy nominated? Yeah. Because, excuse me? For an Emmy That's and, great. Yeah, and won a Peabody and a Gotham and a Glad. But, you know, who's counting? <laughs> um, it's really rad. Yeah. Where, where can people find it right now? Is it still on, it's still on is YouTube. It's still on YouTube? Yep. Just for free? Absolutely. And, um, like, 12 different languages, too. Yeah. It's a really great. And then the episodes are, like, are they, like, six to eight minutes eight long? And, eight or nine minutes. The whole thing yeah. is less than, it's six out, it's six episodes, each one less than ten minutes, so it's less than an hour total. I... Really loved it. Um, How did you come across it? Did, were you because you were kind of in my extended like we have the same circle yeah, of folks. Yeah, I was you it know, because of that or just kind no, of no, it wasn't. I really just I have like a queer queer, queer, queer yeah. I just <laughs> have like a dark. queer felt sense. I'm very really. <laughs> I just had this image of you like in a robe in a room, being like oh, there's something queer happening. <laughs> I really, I really. Cannot stress enough how strong my fascination with queerness in the media is hmm. and and or in entertainment as well. And I don't mean like that I've read every book, but I have read a lot of books uh, where and I mean mostly like novels or I hmm. love uh, LGBT movies. Like I just love consuming that content. I think because hmm. when I was coming out, I didn't have any friends that were right queer and just my girlfriend was queer and she didn't have any other friends that were queer <laughs> so it was just like the two of us alone in the universe so all you had was the media all, where was this where you were completely alone 
Uh, at a very conservative Catholic college in Boston. That'll do it. Yeah. Yeah. Since so, they were there, they were just closeted. <laughs> I mean, I am assuming that they, I will say in my class of 8,000, we're the only, the only lesbian ones? couple that I still know of. Okay. There were gay men. Um, and I don't really know about anybody that's like come out as bi or queer or trans. They're there, though. I know they're there. I don't know them, though. Isn't that genuinely weird that like to think about being around 8,000 people and not knowing anybody yeah odd that is um anyway yeah so i loved your work and i was like now i will just be friends with this person it worked it worked (laughs) uh it's funny our whole circle like we get we we get to know each other by like working with each other which i kind of love it's a very cool time in los angeles right now oh my god yeah i'm finding that um like our cohort of people in their like late 20s to late 40s or even early 50s, like mm-hmm. that group of people, that group of LGBT people is like really making a lot of stuff right yeah. now. We're in the next Hollywood revolution. That's what I've been saying for a while now. You know, every, when I when I came to LA, I, I felt like I had to kind of, I'm a I, obsessive researcher about anything that I get involved in. I have to like research it. And so I was researching history of film and in Hollywood in particular, and you see all these kinds of cycles of revolutions, like every 10 to 20 years, whatever, there's Hollywood revolution. And I was looking back and realized that every single one was a group of young white men replacing a group of older white men. Like that was the revolution. (laughs) And to be fair, like it was, it was an actual revolution in the the aesthetic and the kinds of stories that were being told, but that's all it was. It It wasn't a revolution of identity in any way, shape or form. Like the power structures did not change. It was just the next white men taking over. What I think is happening now with us, our kind of wider circle, is the first Hollywood revolution that's about anyone other than young white men (laughs) kind of like coming over and and taking the reins of this industry. I think it's an incredibly exciting time. Do you have a a thought as to why? I I know my thought as to why. I would love to hear your thought as to why. Like, why now? I mean, social media is a huge part of it because it allowed people who are typically marginalized and isolated to come together and work together. The uh, lower cost of technology reduced the barrier of entry in order to um, filmmake. Um, Streaming services disrupted all the traditional platforms that required such a massive influx of capital. Um, And we're awesome, and people are going to catch (laughs) on to that eventually. I also (laughs) think it's, you know, as we've, like, as this deluge of options for entertainment has become available with the advent of the internet um it like makes more sense to sell targeted Mm -hmm. entertainment and that has always been true but it feels like hollywood just realized it you know like it like it well no it wasn't though that's the thing i mean these things are all driven by technology first and foremost well what i mean is like if you put a movie with a with a that's accessible to people Queer people will go see that movie. Yes. So that's always been true. But it feels like Hollywood just realized, like, oh, if you put, like, four black women in a movie and one of them's Tiffany Haddish, like, right. black people will go see that movie. Yeah. What and, a shocking revelation. And other people, too. <laughs> also other people. people I have seen like it twice <laughs> in theaters. Right. Yeah. But I guess I just mean, like, that non-straight white dollars are important, like mm-hmm. non-straight white cis dollars having the same amount of value as other dollars. Like, yeah. that's also a cool moment. Yeah, right the now. industry I mean, across the board of all industries have been remarkably behind on the um, the kind of buying power of, of LGBT circles. I mean, they've mostly focused on, you know, rich gay white men and then to some extent, you know, rich white lesbians. But for the most part, they've ignored it as, as, a, as a whole. Yeah. How did you guys talk to me about her story? Number one, it looks great. It's like yeah. very beautifully made. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you guys make it? Well, we got really lucky, and our executive producer, Catherine Fisher, uh, really is the one who took this kind of like crazy little project and turned it into something kind of sumptuous and really gorgeous that could merit an Emmy nomination and all these other awards. That that wasn't something we anticipated or intended when Laura and I first started. It was just uh, and Laura Zach who sorry, created yeah. the Laura Zach is my co-writer, co-star, um, every co everything, and uh, we wrote this little script. It was going to be shot in Chicago for Tello, who you might be familiar with. Yeah, and it was going to be like a ten thousand dollar budget, and 
And then Catherine Fisher read the script and was like, I'd like to do this better. And so we ended up moving out to L.A. and doing it. And, you know, then it ballooned to like a $100,000 budget. That's all Kate's doing. She brought in Sydney Freeland, our incredible director, whose you know, first film premiered at Sundance and was produced by Robert Redford. Uh, Beatrice Evano, our cinematographer, who was an apprentice under Wally Pfister on The Dark Knight. So we just had this like, really incredible team from the start. Yeah, and Sydney's great as well. I mean, yeah. I know Laura, I know Sydney, awesome, mm-hmm. just great people. And, you know, I had, so I, I had, a, I had a, <laughs> a, a future star in my pocket, too, with Angelica Ross. Yeah. Because we were roommates in Chicago. Angelica and I were living together uh, as I wrote it. And you guys, uh, you were roommates where? Where did you live? Uh, we lived in Albany Park over on kind of the west side. It was like the we had to keep going further and further in order to get something big that we could <laughs> yeah, afford. Absolutely. So it was like just past the end of the brown line. Yeah. I know where Albany Park is. Yeah. And it's a shitty neighborhood. <laughs> Angelica is having like a huge. Sorry, I'm going to stop this one for a second. Can you just do me a favor? Angelica's great in her story and totally. But you have, how many television shows have you been in like the last year? I feel like you're everywhere right now, which is really good. Yeah. I feel like people are seeing your talent and putting you in things. You were in Take My Wife because we really wanted to work with you. It's just, it was just like a small part, but we really wanted. But I made the most of it. (laughs) Number one, you were great. And number two, we really wanted it to be you. And we're really excited that we got to work with you. Yeah, me too. That was a lot of fun. Do you feel like you're in demand right now? Um, I don't know about in demand. Uh, I'm certainly getting, I'm getting work. And like, how long ago were you in Chicago? I came out here about just a little over two years ago. So that's, that's kind of amazing just on the face of that alone. Yeah, no doubt. So like, I'm always aware that I'm, you know, like basically homeless. Like, I have no car, I have no home. I'm living out of suitcases for the last two years and like, I'm desperately poor. So that's kind of my gauge on everything. So I'm <laughs> constantly like, well, nothing's really happening. Nothing's really happening. But if I look at it objectively, the amount of work I've had, the kind of success I've had, the circles that I've kind of gotten into. Um, and as my agent's always reminding me, like I've had more happen in my first like year or two than most people have in their first 10. So that's 100 percent true. Yeah. I mean, I can say, you know, what's great about being on the outside is that you can say to somebody that, that you know, that that's true. Like where that would be impossible <laughs> to tell yourself, because yeah. why would you do this job if you are ever satisfied? Yeah. If you had like this innate ability to just be like, that's enough. You wouldn't do this no, to exactly. begin with. So exactly. <laughs> I will say that you sound like you are evaluating yourself exactly as you should. <laughs> and as somebody who's totally unrelated i can just be like you're killing it but you can be like i mean hardly i think the question we have to ask ourselves is how much can we do now to make our mothers love us 20 years ago oh my god you know it's tough like how do you do that i know i mean i ask myself every day how what's the best way to deal with your social anxiety by having you talk into a microphone yes in a way that other people have to listen (laughs) so therefore like conversations aren't so stressful yeah yeah do you not like one-on-one conversations? Is that do you socially anxious there too? No, I really like talking to people one-on-one. That's okay. that's totally. Are you an introvert? Fun. Yes. Yeah, me too. Yeah, I'm for sure like the world's biggest introvert. Um, I hate. I would hate like a party mm-hmm. that would be very big yeah. where I wouldn't know a lot of people. That's oh, like that's a nightmare. Very very hard. That's an absolute nightmare. Yeah, my I'm I'm feel grateful that my friends know that now. So when we go to events and parties, like when we went to some, I think it was the Glad Awards recently. You know, we walk out, and Angelica is a total extrovert and, like, the life of the party wherever she goes. She really is. I believe I ran into you guys at the yeah, exactly. Awards, and she was very taking charge it's of like the, the whole party was zone, for her. which is yeah. great. Yeah. No, and she does that effortlessly, and people love it. Laura is very similar, just not, like, not on the biggest scale. I literally went to, like, one of those things where they had, like, a photo, and there was a backdrop, and, like, found a couch behind the backdrop. <laughs> <laughs> and was sitting there by myself. <laughs> well, I wasn't anxious at all because I had a job. My job was job to, to host the awards, so that makes me feel very comfortable. Oh, you can you because can, then there's context, yeah. and so like I don't have to actually. You can walk me out into a, to a onto a stage in front of a thousand people and say, "Go talk for a half hour," and I'll be totally fine. So I when, will like, keep them in rapture. When did you realize that that was true about you? You know, it's only been the last few years, actually, that I started to realize just how introverted I am, and started honoring it. And the more that I honor it the more I kind of exasperate it. But also, what about the, I can do this? Like, I can be on stage and I can take up space that way. When did you figure that out? Well, so I have an unusual facility with language. 
and I that's been true since I was a little kid. You know, I was, you know, the other parents were like, oh, the kid with all, that says all the big words. You know, I had a girlfriend once who confessed to me later that when we first started dating, she carried she bought a pocket dictionary to keep in her purse so she could understand <laughs> my text. And I've been writing for my entire life. There's never been a time I, I wasn't writing. You know, the other students um, had me speak at graduation in high school and then again at college. I ran an underground paper in high school. Where did you grow up? Where was where Outside Chicago, high schools where suburbs. Where? Glenbard West, Glen Ellen. Oh, I know that. I'm yeah. from Western Springs, which oh, that's is like right. right near which is where my girlfriend's from, actually. Oh. <laughs> amazing. <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah. So we're that's not far at all. Yeah. Um you had an underground paper. What what did the underground paper write about? Um, you know, it was a kind of a it was a mix of a bunch of things. A lot of it was just kind of nonsense, but you know, I've always been kind of um I don't even know how to put it, a zealot in some way, shape, or form. You know, I can't stand injustice when I see it. I have to, like, speak out to it. <laughs> so there's actually a story in her story that's that's a true story from my life, which was uh, I was 15, and um, a bunch of my girlfriends, because even back then I mostly hung out with girls, were being sexually harassed by teachers, and nothing was being done about it. And one of my friends was almost dropping out of a class because she hated going there so much. So I wrote an article in the paper and kind of detailed it. And the very next day, the principal called an all-faculty meeting, and then all those teachers just completely stopped doing what they were doing. Like, and that was, you know, can you imagine being 15? No, I can't. And changing the world in that way. You know, it was small, and it was something that I wasn't personally enduring. But I, 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 had, I discovered that I had power to make the world a little bit better. Why? Why would you? Why would you have written that? Like, where does that come from in you? I don't know. I don't know. It just pissed me off. I guess. Was there anything in your family structure or, like, faith background? Or is that just, like, you looking at the world going, I don't like I don't like to see meanness. I don't like to see I think justice not yeah, served. I think it's more that. I mean, I'm very – I guess I was always very sensitive. I've always mm. been very sensitive to things. And I can um, – I almost wish I wasn't as empathetic as I am because it's, it's hard to filter. You might know this, too, as an introvert. Like, I – I, if I imagine other people suffering, it's almost too much for me to bear. And I read a lot of history, and like history is just full of suffering. And even now, like so, when I see injustices of any shape or form, it's just it's hard for me to to bear. I put so, myself in the place of that person. So you're writing this newspaper in high school. What else were you like? You had mostly you hung out with mostly girls, like you said. That's not true, actually. Um, I said that, but it's partly true. Some of my closest friends are girls, but there was also this group of boys that I lived nearby when I first moved to Chicago, and they became friends for like 20 years. They were almost more like family, though, for a lot of times. What else were you like? Oh, I mean, I don't know. I went to a really cool high school. It wasn't like typical. Like, I actually had a really good high school experience. Um, so did I. Did you? Yeah, that's yeah I did. But like a, well, we can talk about more about why. <laughs> I think I looked back at it and was like, oh, I was, like, dealing with some stuff internally. Mm. But, like, at school, I had a very good time. Yeah, I mean, I was, you know, I was having a good time and then, like, going home and cutting myself, you know, that that kind of shit. I was and... having a good time and then going home and having an eating disorder. Ah. But at school, yeah. I was, like, absolutely, like, a yeah. three-sport athlete and dating the captain of the football team and, like, really <laughs> well-liked, even though I was Did also the mascot. Uh, no, he is not gay. Oh, too bad. I know. Wouldn't that have been great? Yeah. Um. I yeah. did. Um, I played football up until my through my sophomore year of high school. What position is, do you play? Well, it changed every year because so when I was young, I had my growth spurt early, and so for a while, I was like the biggest person on the team, and so like I was like a linebacker or you know a tackle, right. <laughs> and then great. by by time at the end, like my sophomore year, I was like a safety because um, I was still really fast, but I was really good at it. But then eventually, I just kind of lost my taste for it, and I switched to theater, and then I I was like. The kind of like hot actor of the school, and I was the I was the hot boy at my high school. That's who I was, <laughs> like physically hot. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't. It was nice. It's the one time in my life I've ever felt cool. It was like that brief period at the end of my high school time. Wow, what was that like? It was really cool. <laughs> Did you? I've never been cool since. Date a lot it... of people. No. What is it like being like the hot? Because I would say this. I for some reason like. I should say for those who don't know, too, like, I'm a woman now. Because <laughs> people might not know that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there will be, like, a fo- there will be like a photo. Yeah, but not uh, everyone sees the photo. Yeah. They just might listen to it. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, but I was a boy in high school. Yeah, yes. Kind of. Yes, sure. <laughs> I Yes. S- sure. 
Yeah. Um, when I was in high school, I think my awareness of my queerness was like, I don't think I was unattractive at all, but I was, I was like, I can't do the thing uh, that like that you're looking for. So I'll just, but I'll be, but I'm like so funny. Yeah. You know, like, I mean, I, I wasn't even like wearing like a uniform and I didn't even wear like the uniform skirt by then, by like senior year. I just like only wore pants and steel toed boots and somehow was still like. So you were the chick I would have had the crush on. I hope so. (laughs) That would have been great. Um, But like, I don't have, so I was like, like, it was kind of well liked, but not like, you know, if you think about the popular person, like not that person, just like the person that everybody's like, she's such a goofball and Uh. like really passionate about student government, you know? (laughs) Were you in student (laughs) government? Oh, yeah. I was like so fucking into it. But I would never have been. I don't know if people would have said cool. I don't know if I I don't know if other people would say it's cool, but I certainly I feel like if you say that about yourself, I'm going to take it as on face value that you were cool. Well, I mean, what I objectively what I know is like the classmates chose me, you know, to be on the prom court mm-hmm. and to speak at graduation and student government and, you know, senior most likely to X, Y or Z or whatever. So I think what were you most likely? Um, Do you remember? What was it uh, to win an Academy Award? I mean, that's probably true. Yeah. Well, it's going to happen someday. Mm-hmm. And I was a senior you most wanted to be stranded on a desert. <laughs> <laughs> what the crap? What a weird <laughs> slash amazing. Oh, man. Yeah. Like, who actually gets to be that person in high school? It didn't. I don't know. I was voted next Janine Garofalo. That's not Isn't bad. Isn't that the most specific sp- that superlative is you've very, ever heard? And that is so 90s, by the I way. Know, I know, <laughs> That's like the most. I know. Next Gene Garofalo. And then also my boyfriend and I were voted a couple, most like Little of Happily Ever After. No. True. Wait, people didn't know? They really didn't know? No, no, no. Now, were you, because I know GSAs like happened after me. Was that kind mm. of stuff happening yet when you were in high school? No, not at okay. all. And also not in college. We were not allowed to have an uh, well, GSA sure, in college. Yeah. yeah. So like, I've never... Seen any of that stuff? Yeah. Um. But w- could you have been? Did you know anybody queer kids in high school? No, no. It's one of those things. Like looking back, of course. You yeah. Know, like like most of the guys in theater, you know, right? Where, like we're clearly yeah, gay. Same. Um, but and you know, and I I had I had crushes on boys. Um, and you know, was starting to like make out with boys at the time. But I was also like dating the cheerleader and stuff like mm, that. Mm-hmm. So it was a kind of like double life. A lot of thing. things. Yeah. A lot of things going on. <laughs> <laughs> Just a lot. <laughs> what happened right after high school? Um, then things went downhill. Yeah. My uh, my my mom and her second husband separated, declared bankruptcy. I came home one day and all my stuff was on the lawn. Um, and I was – so I just started working full time and kind wow. of taking care of myself. Wow. That's – that's hard. That's really yeah, hard. Yeah, it was at the time. Yeah, it was really, it was very hard at the time. You were like you know, still a teen? Yeah, I was 19, I think, when, when that happened. Um, you know, all my friends got to, you know, go off to college and like go on vacations and do all this stuff. And we were poor. And so I always felt that kind of difference. And um, then I didn't get to go to college like everyone else. And then like my mom and I, I was working full time and paying rent. And my mom and I were constantly fighting all the time. I was I was an angry asshole, too. It's I'm not putting this all on her. Where were you living? This was a, would have been in Glendale Heights at that point. But like, were you still were you living with your mom I, at the time, time? Yeah, I was living with my mom like right after high school and then and for about a year. And then I got kicked out. And, and then, then where did you live after that? All over. I've been on my own ever since. So. Yeah. yeah, but outside of Chicago, I mostly stayed out there. I worked in restaurants. Um, eventually, joined like a commune and became a monk for a little while, and you know, like you do. Classic story. And then uh, eventually um, went back to college on weekends uh, while I was working full time, like later in my later twenties. Wow. Yes. Yes. I'm giving you like, the Cliff of Notes monk? version. <laughs> Well, I mean, I wasn't technically a monk, but I lived in a, the headquarters of a spiritual organization, and you know, there was like a lot of rules there. And I lived in this, you know, like little room in this old building that you couldn't get to unless you lived there. And you know, like hung out in the library reading. I was studying Sanskrit and Japanese, and you know, kind of doing like a deep dive into um, Eastern religion and philosophy at the time. What was appealing to you about that? Um, you know, I've. Like I said, I was always a sensitive kid, and then my um, get heavy here. My father drowned when I was eight, and I didn't have religion at the time. I didn't have this kind of, oh, your dad's gone off to live with the angels now. It's just like your dad's gone. 
you know, just this kind of brutal sudden, what the fuck happened? And so as a kid, I kind of became obsessed with death. Um, and that carried me through. And then at 14 or 15, I had my first experience with psychedelics, you know, like LSD. And that kind of completely blew my mind as well. And so at that point, I just became obsessed with understanding, like, what the fuck is life about? And that, and that's pretty much driven everything for the, you know, past 25 years. I mean, I can't relate to the <laughs> losing my father thing because uh, my dad's still here. Um, but I can totally relate to the trying to figure out what we're doing here. That's been yeah. the major focus of my life. I mean, a lot of us, you know, we get wrapped up into everything else like we do. You know, we have to have careers and marriages and kids and all that stuff. And But ultimately, that's I think a lot of us are just trying to get to that, like figure out what the fuck is this all about. Right. I mean, I was, I was, I was a theology major. Yeah, oh. and I studied in oh, Rome. Oh, that's right. When I was we like, first talked, yeah. I knew that a little bit, yeah. Yeah, I was really, really into it. And I think that I was into it... Um, I mean, I think some people find religion and then, like, that works for them as something that gives them a bunch of answers. Mm -hmm. And I think for me, it was just more like... Uh, it was like learning a language where you could try to figure out what the answers might be yourself or whatever. Because there aren't... I don't think there are is one answer obviously I, and i don't think somebody else knows it for you you know for one yeah you have to figure it out for yourself but um which i did eventually by the way you figured out the answer yeah to like life and yeah. death and everything yeah, for myself do you want to tell me what it is well it's for myself like it but can you like share it. what it is for you um well i mean so there's you know there's an old there's some version of this story all over the place but i think the version i'm thinking of it is um oh what's the merchant ivory film with julian sands I can't remember the title of it. Well, I don't know. Okay. I mean, this is you telling me what <laughs> you, you have to. Anyway, there's this story, like there's this character who's a kind of like anxious, like searcher type. And then one day he's like blissed out happy. And, you know, he's this character who's like always asking why, what does this mean? Why, what does this mean? And then someone says he finally realized that the, the answer to the question why is yes. Right. Which I, I know you know what yes. I'm talking about. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. And I think that's, that's. That's true. Right. Um, you know, I had this friend years ago. It was a colleague when I was working in a, a whole different part of my life. And he said he envied me because I lived my life with a question mark. Ooh, that is good. Well, I, but I, I did, it didn't feel good at the time because like that kind of searching is driven by like fear and anxiety and desperation and pain and trauma, you know? And, and I said like, I don't think we're meant to live with a question mark. I really don't think we're meant to. To, to kind of question why I think we're meant to live. I think we, we we come into life to live. I think something broke with me because of my father's death or whatever it was. Um, and there was some stuff that preceded that as well. And that forced me to kind of have to reconfigure and like figure out the question mark. But I don't think we're meant to do that. I think we're meant to like come here and live. Like, live Wow, I don't know if I agree with that. But I love that only, only the I – I mean – you're probably right, but who can do that? That sounds so impossible to me to just well, live. I think it's beautiful. Lots of people do. I know a lot of people do. Like they never, they just they they grow up. You know, they go through school, they get a job, they yeah. get married, they have kids, they suffer because that's part of life. But they, you know, they go to their desk without really questioning it so much. Whether religion gives them an answer or where they find it some other way, right? Like that gives them meaning and, and kind of moral purpose and, and spiritual context. But they might not question it. They're just there to live life. Yeah. I mean, I, th that's totally possible. I think I don't know too many of those people. <laughs> just in how I've well, chosen to arrange my I mean, circle of friends slash, exactly. the, slash, slash the family I chose to be born into, um, which was definitely not a choice. Uh, but I mean, queer artists know, are people for whom like are asking those questions, you know? Yeah, that's like the whole point. Well, here's maybe my sort of response to what you were talking about, about the why and yes. Um, one thing that I learned in my, from like my theology professor that I still think about all the time, mm -hmm. um, was like an understanding of God as, uh, so like, okay, you want to hear, you want to hear, Go you want to hear one? Do it. Go okay. ahead. Um, cause so when so Jesus, you do you know about do you know who Jesus is? I am familiar with yeah, Jesus. Okay. So um, he, and I have talked. he was a brown guy and anyway, didn't speak English. That guy. Yeah. Um 
we don't really know what he looked like. That guy, you know, no, what I'm talking blonde, about. curly hair. Right, right, right. You know, no, probably Light like a coming matted, out, be- lambs all around him. Probably American like, flag on his chest. That's not the guy. You're oh. thinking of a different guy. This okay, is sorry. a yeah. This is another guy. Um, but when when he was asked like, what are the like, what's the what's the primary commandment to live your life? And it's like, love God above all else and love your neighbor, which is actually two it's, answers. Yeah. But the reason that... Because they're the same thing. Yes. And do you know why they're the same thing? Well, because when we're loving each other, we're loving God in us because we are God. Because God only exists in relationship. That's what it is. Well, that's a very Christian answer. That's a very well, Christian answer, which sh- I love. But sure. that's a very... That's a dis- difference between Western theology and Eastern theology. Okay. Tell me about Eastern theology. Well, the Eastern the theology would that. be is that, that you are God and your neighbor is God. And so you're honoring God through that. Yes. What's unique about Christianity is the separation between the human and the divine. And Jesus is the bridge between those. Mm. And there's this really... Right. This is the thing I love about Western theology and Western mysticism. It's that... Um, that separation is what allows for the unification, and that unification is—you know—we have a word for that. It's called love, and that's really <laughs> that's wonderful. Right. And you that's know, really wonderful. That's why people say God is love. That's why people say that. Yes, <laughs> some people say that. I've heard people say that. <laughs> is this what you're expecting when you? <laughs> I mean, I'm happy. Well, good. I'm happy to be having this conversation. No, it's not what I was expecting. I didn't know a lot of this stuff about your background. I didn't yeah, know. I don't really talk about. I mean, if it comes up organically, sure. But you know. I'm here with a mission, so I kind of like just focus on my work. <laughs> your mission is to take over Hollywood and my... I'm just saying what your mission is. I'm guessing. No, what is your mission? That's a consequence of my mission. <laughs> okay, great. No, my mission is to reduce violence against trans women. Well, that is a very good fucking mission. Talk to me about that. Talk to me about, number one, how you're doing that on a daily basis. Because I believe that you absolutely are working Yeah, no, that's, I mean, that. all of my work is is ultimately kind of geared towards that. You know, because I'd been doing that work before I came to Hollywood just through other forms and got really frustrated at the kind of slow pace of change and the kind of institutional and organizational dynamics of... of what was, what did that look like? You know, I was doing activism, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, kind of like working with legislators and like pushing that or doing community organizing, you know, both virtually and in Chicago, that kind of stuff. And uh, basically realized that storytelling has a greater reach and uh, is more effective at changing hearts and minds in a really personal, intimate way. So if I can center uh, trans people in stories and that people like learn to have empathy for them and understand them as things that are not monsters... And to kind of destigmatize um, attraction towards trans people and and relationships with trans people, then hopefully I can reduce some of the violence against them. Absolutely. Yeah, that's the hope. I mean, that very much the reason that I feel called to do stand-up is to, like, be a thing that I didn't get to see when I was a kid. That's yeah. number one. And then number two, I mean, really... When I started doing stand-up, we were in a really different place as a country. And what, what year would that I have been? I felt like, um, when did I start? I mean, I started doing comedy professionally the same year I graduated from college, so 2004. Okay. And then I started doing stand-up um, and not improv like in 2006 maybe or seven. Okay. So it was, was out, Ellen was out though, right? Ellen was out, yes. Ellen was out. Did that help things? Well, I think like Ellen, I know it's one person. Ellen feels very distant, though. You know, mm. like I will say this: she uh, did so much coming out, but she was already so famous, right? And I felt like, and she still does a lot. Like just her presence on daytime television mm-hmm. is enormous. But um, I felt like I was going and playing like Fort Wayne, Indiana, and I was literally talking to people that were going to vote on whether or not I was a human being. Oh God! And so I was like, I have to win you. Like, I'm literally That's making the amazing. world safer for myself, like, for other people and for me, you yeah. know, like, that there was there's a selflessness to it. And then there's also selfishness to it where I'm like, I need you to meet me so that you don't want to kill me. That's incredible. Um, That's such a crazy thought that, like, you're actually speaking to people who will then vote for against your own rights. Oh, my God. Rhea and I toured, um, like, prior to when that, that big summer when, like, every state was changing on marriage equality, like, on a mm-hmm. daily basis. Yeah. We were setting up this tour where we were going to go to every state that that was currently illegal. Wow. But we kept waking up and, like, we'd have booked shows and then it would be like, <laughs> Kentucky's now illegal. We'd be like, God damn it, <laughs> which is the worst, which is the wrong response. But, um, yeah, I mean, we, we were, like, 
in Indiana doing shows right when Mike Pence did that, like, oh, no pizza for gays thing. So I understand what you're talking about. I really do think that being the face that people have to mm-hmm. meet makes a massive difference. Well, and I'm sure you know, I'm sure you've heard feedback from from fans that you have changed people's minds. I'm sure that there are people who yes. have told you, like, oh, like, now you're not so scary. <laughs> well, absolutely. You know, one thing that, like, breaks my heart that happens sometimes is uh, parents bring their queer kids mm-hmm. to shows. And, I mean, I just want to throw up and die because it's, like, the best thing that could ever yeah. happen is just, like, some parent being, like, I don't know exactly what to say. And also, like, I don't know what to say to your kid, but I'm trying, yeah. you know. And so they're... Yeah, I think there's a huge. I think there's been a huge impact felt. How do you feel your your impact in the world? Do you I, feel like you're getting the response that that what you're doing is working? I feel like I'm one part, one small part of a larger movement with some much bigger and more talented and incredible people than me um, that are absolutely making a huge difference. I mean, if you, if you look at Laverne Cox and Janet Mock and Angelica Ross and um, I could go on, like, list 50 other names of these really incredible, out-visible trans people who are lifting themselves up. They're lifting each other up. They're celebrating each other. And they're being themselves kind of, like, boldly and unapologetically in the public eye. And I think that's having a huge impact. Absolutely. And, you know, I think because I have read a lot about this, n- not from first-person experience, I think I n- know what you're talking about, about reducing violence against trans women. But just for any of our listeners... yeah. Could you talk to me a little bit about yeah, typically, like this epidemic yeah, that um, is currently fucking attacking our family and yeah. our community? Well, thank you for saying it that way, too, because I, I think that's important to remember. It's our family. This is an LGBT 100%. issue. 100%. And too many people want to ignore that part of it. Uh, there is typically between two and three dozen murders of trans women every year in this country and have been you know, as long as we've been recording them. And a vastly disproportionate number of them are um, black uh, followed by like Latina and some indigenous or API, Asian Pacific Islander. Most of them are young. Uh, a lot of them are sex workers doing survival sex work. And they are killed by their intimate partners. Um, that's what that's what we know. And that's been going on for forever. And it's, it's true globally. Um, it, that story is true pretty much everywhere in the world because trans people are everywhere in the world. And pretty much everywhere in the world we're, we're stigmatized and kind of shoved to the margins of society. And are denied the kind of like basic things like police protection or laws or housing or education. Uh, in Brazil each year, there's between two and three hundred trans women who are murdered each year, and nothing happens. No one's no one's arrested. Um, there's I don't like to even I don't want to have to think about it. But there was like a video of a woman being stoned and burned alive in Brazil, and people cheering. Um, in fact, there was news just this morning. Just from Arizona, from a couple of days ago, a trans teenager was lured to a pool party where 20 people um, jumped and beat her and filmed it and put it on social media and were cheering as it happened. And she's in the hospital all messed up. Like, that's happening today. There's, like, that much hatred and disgust of trans people. And uh, that's, that's, you know, it's hard. Um, the very fir- One of the very first events I went to as an out trans woman was a memorial service for a young woman in Chicago named Paige Clay who's 23 and found in an alley with a bullet in her head. Nobody was ever arrested and there was no kind of justice ever done. And by all accounts, she was just, you know, she was just a young woman trying to get by. Like she wasn't actually even engaged in sex work as far as we know, or not that even if she was, it wouldn't matter. You know, it's, she was just trying to, to get by. And, you know, a lot of these kids have like no support from anyone. You know, they're turned away from from school and from churches and from work and from family. So they're incredibly vulnerable. And I have, um, you know, because of my race, because of my education, just because of whatever privileges I was born with, I I have um, a slightly better time of it. And so I feel like a moral responsibility to to use what little extra privilege I have to, to kind of help that situation as much as I can. Absolutely. I, I mean, I'm, oh, man, I'm, it's, It's rage and it's as rage inducing as it is fucking yeah so heartbreaking. I yeah. mean I feel like just sick to know and please correct me if I'm wrong um not that like you are the perfect expert and answer of all but but you know the intimate violent the intimate partner violence yeah. element of it 
so often isn't necessarily hatred of the trans woman. Yeah. It's self-hatred over ever being interested in a trans woman, I, right? It, like it that's can pretty be close. both things or can be the one – like I hate myself so much that I'm going to kill you is to me like another part that we can work yeah. to break down. As far as I can tell, and I've talked to a lot of trans women who survived violence, and you know, I've read the news reports and accounts um, as much as possible. And the traditional narrative that that's always been like we see in police reports when a, when a woman is killed is like they'll they'll say the male name, they'll say they were dressed as a woman, and then like you know a John killed them or they tricked a guy into having sex. That yes, yeah, right, like because it was revealed yeah, something exactly. like was revealed, and oh, you, I mean, even that fucking awful comic. I don't even know his name because I don't know this oh, yeah, comic yeah, I saw that one. who, like, uh, last week or whatever, two weeks ago, was talking about, like... Oh, yeah, yeah, The like, Breakfast Club. Yeah. yeah, The Breakfast Club. Yeah, I mean, that's a that's a common sentiment. Oh, if I found out a girl was really trans, I'd, you know, I'd kill that faggot, basically. Um, that... So so what, what, what I know, what every trans woman knows is that we don't trick men. Like, men pursue us, and then they feel shame afterwards. And what I can tell, as far as I can tell, it's not self-hatred it's fear of what other men will think of them because mm -hmm. they've been with a trans woman and this i know firsthand because i've been with so many men who have just flat out told me like yeah i, I could never let anyone know i was dating a trans woman or hooking up with a trans woman or interested in trans women because they'll like make fun of me or think i'm gay <sighs> and the thing and it's tricky because these are straight guys and and people don't understand that like even even other LGBT people assume that the men who like me are gay, but like gay men have, I'm invisible to gay men. The men who like me are straight. I can, I mean, I mean, yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I get hit on by lesbians and straight men. Yes. <laughs> Look, hey, the world is a spectrum and sexuality is a spectrum. No you are also like a beautiful woman. I remember after you want to take my wife and you were <laughs> tweeting at me like, I mean, I'm going to turn bright red now. You're turning you're, bright red already. Know, it's adorable. You are you're hiding me. your face with your hands. Because <laughs> you were tweeting at me like, very funny, Cameron Esposito couldn't even watch me change in the wardrobe because I was helping you pick your wardrobe for the scenes. And yes. I was like, yeah, dude, I'm a fucking lesbian, dude. Like, I'm a fucking lesbian. Like, I don't understand what, where the confusion is. Like, I'm... Yeah, I can't yeah. watch you change. That's not. I can't. What are you talking about? I'm in a can. I can watch. But you yeah. were adorable. You were giggling like a 14 year old boy. And I think I'm red. doing it right now. You are now. exactly right now. I'm sweating through my shirt. I love it. But uh, I do think that like, um, you know, there's so many different angles to try and work on that issue. Which, by the way, this is a family issue. I mean, I very much take this as. You know, I don't know if it's like being like a tiny Italian person from a tiny Italian family where everybody's like very passionate about family, but I tiny in numbers or tiny in size? Just small. Okay, You've just seen small. Me. I'm this. I'm yeah. small this way, uh, height. Um, but I mean, I just feel like I feel like you and I may or may not have things in common, but one thing that we share is understanding otherness understanding going after the life that we want having other people judge that or support that and that makes us a family like we mm, have like that. we have a lot in common based on the lived experience that we have as as queer people and as yeah. people in the LGBT community and we cannot forget that agree and you know but it's important to to extend to people like the kind of I mean, poor black trans women. You know, I'm just going to kind of center their story because that's that's who's being ignored. Like even people who will like having me around might get uncomfortable around the people who are actually most at risk. It starts with just right. any good trans woman. Like that's yeah. a starting point, and hopefully we can extend that circle of care and compassion and empathy. Yes. Yeah. Yes. LGBT, you know, we've our our family, like any other family, has a lot of issues. <laughs> um, you know, I I was in Chicago still when. Take back Boys Town? Yes. Yeah. This is a tough thing to talk about because it, it's tough. I mean, yeah. it's just tough to know about it. It's, t it's fucking tough. But I was in Chicago still at the very, like, sort of rumblings of mm. that. And, you know, for those of 
for those people who aren't part of the queer community in Chicago, what happened was that Boys Town, which is traditionally like a very white, affluent, it's the center of... Well, it's not traditionally it, no, that. It's not what, traditionally. That's what it became. That's not what I mean. I mean it traditionally in my lifetime, but like... <laughs> when okay. I was a kid, we used to come out from the suburbs yes. and like hang out at the corner of Belmont and Clark right. at what we used to call the Pumpkin Donuts. And, you know, like that's where like queer people go and that's yes. where like homeless queer youth would like hang out. Yes. And then, and then those people grew up and found each other and supported each other and created businesses together and... Different people moved in from the suburbs and they created a whole beautiful neighborhood full of condos. And like there is some, you know, there's a lot of history there. Yeah. Um, but but then uh, they didn't the want LGBT center anymore. cropped up. Yeah. Uh, this beautiful, they built this beautiful LGBT center for like homeless queer youth. And it turns out that a lot of those people were black trans women. Um, just people of color, black, yeah. People in general, people, Queer of, people color. of color, yeah, yeah. Coming from the south side, with nowhere else to go, and our own community rejected them, yeah, and was furious. And there were, you know, town, like city council meetings and shit like that about it. And they could sit there in public. They could these public forums and sit up there, stand up there, and like yell about like not wanting these kids there because they were they were bringing crime and they were you know, disrupting property values and what the neighborhood had become and all that. It was just astonishing to watch that. It's disgusting. Just disgusting. I completely agree. Yeah. I mean, so, and, uh, and the, you know, the crime that we're talking about, too, you know, I mean, like, I do remember reading about some of the things that were happening, and it was like, white guy who's 50 gets his wallet taken. Right. But then we're talking about versus teenage trans woman of color beaten to death. Right. So I do, I do think that as a community, we do we have to look at yeah. and weigh, like, what the fuck are we actually talking yeah. about here? Like, I'm sorry that your wallet got taken. Yeah, we're not saying that that's okay, but, but like, it doesn't justify these other these things. These are kids. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't been back there in a long time. Have you been back there recently? Uh, yeah. Yeah. In fact, that, that corner of Belmont and Clark is now a high-rise condo. Oh, wow. Yeah, the Dunkin' Donuts is gone. Is the neighborhood dynamic any less tense right now? I think so. I think the gentrifiers won. Oh, great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the money wins, huh? Like, that's <laughs> in the long run. So where are those kids? I, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I'm not connected there as much anymore. Yeah, I mean, me neither. Um, I'm sure there are some Chicago listeners. Tell us where they are. Tell us where those kids are. Who's providing services to those kids and I mean, how to can be we fair, help there, them? There's some great organizations in Chicago, like Chicago House, like this, yeah. like um, Howard Brown. Howard Brown, absolutely. They're, yes, and Chicago is a great city. I'm just yes. talking about this specific incident that was like watching our own community fight our own community. Yeah. Like you, you know you were those kids. Yeah. You cannot pretend you weren't those kids or whatever. You know, Listen, everybody that's a successful Yeah, exactly. Person. I think the health of any community depends on on, on the, the moral health of any community depends on its ability, its capacity to center those who are most vulnerable. I mean, I really firmly believe that. You know who else believed that? This guy, <laughs> Jesus. This guy, this guy, Jesus. That's what he was talking about the whole time. He was indeed. Did you, did you remember that? He was, oh, yeah, I heard yeah, that one. He heard said that, one. that whole thing. He was up on a mound. He was yeah, like sermonizing. He had a lot something. of stuff to say about it. But like. That again and again is like his main point. Yeah, yeah. I know, and it's just you know one of the the things that most informs my my perspective on the world, on activism, on community is the AIDS crisis, and I feel like a lot of the lessons that were learned there were forgotten by people, kind of as soon as they got material success, which is the the consequence of when your crises are being ignored by other people. You know, um. Trans people are a very small number of people, so when you hear a couple dozen deaths, it obviously does not compare to, you know, the millions who have died from AIDS. But if you read, like, the book and the band played on, which there's this incredibly detailed, like, day-by-day -day, um, breakdown of what happened in the early days of the AIDS crisis, what you see is that the gay community at the very beginning, when there was just a couple hundred people who were getting this disease... And who were there being, like, turned away by, like, doctors and, you know, like, they weren't getting the help that they needed to, you know, to, to live and die with dignity. They saw it as a crisis then. 
I feel like that's happening to us proportionally. Like if you look at it in terms of even just a percentage of trans people, like this is our AIDS crisis and no one wants to do anything about it. You know, another thing that I think contributed to forgetting that part of our history is that I think applies to what you're talking about also. Um, you know, because because our our families aren't necessarily linear. Like my parents are not queer, mm-hmm. and so they didn't teach me about my queer history. Right. Yeah. Um, I know a lot about being Italian. <laughs> you know, I know a lot about Catholicism. I didn't learn anything about the AIDS crisis. I like literally learned about it from like Dan Savage. I mean, it's not in history books, but it's also not passed down in yeah. a familial way. And I think. Maybe, you know, I mean, and who knows, maybe that will change as like younger people are becoming more aware of themselves now. Like that's a different, there's a younger generation that like aren't just all coming out when they're 20 or all realizing who they are when they're 20 or 30 or four or whatever age it is. But like for me, I mean, I, I realized I was gay when I was 19 and that was in like, you know, 2001. Mm. So the AIDS crisis was yeah, happening, I mean, but it was also no, the history. Air, the you know, ARDs like, were 95. So by that yeah. point, like it was no longer what right. it had been. Yes. I mean, so when I entered the community, it wasn't something we were talking about. Mm. And I didn't learn from my history books about it. You know, it blows me. I mean, there's this, this one incident happened to me I'll never forget. I was attending... There was some big gala in Chicago, like a, you know, Big Gay Inc. kind of thing. And uh, there was some criticism that they weren't, like, you know, reaching out to, like, trans people and things like that. And this was years ago before trans was really starting to get centered. And so they reached out to me and Angelica and a few other folks and sit and, like, gave us, like, a table, basically. They wanted us to be there, which was great. And then we got there and realized that what we didn't have a table. They dispersed us amongst any open seats at other people's <laughs> tables. So here I am, the introvert. All of a sudden, I'm at a table of eight strangers, you know, like the one trans woman in this group of, like, eight gay white men who can afford a table at this gala. And I was sitting there judging them so fucking hard in my head, just despising them. And, the, you know, this parade of, like, you know, sponsored by Northern Trust, like, you know, these banks and, like, other corporations and, like, people applauding, just, like, all this money. I was just, like, I was so disgusted. And then at some point in the night, the conversation switched. So, you know, somehow, like, AIDS came up. And these men started telling stories. And every one of them had lost half of their community. Like, half. They watched half of their friends die die in the streets, like die in homes, die in almost unimaginably horrific deaths. AIDS is an awful, awful death. And watch everyone turn away from them. Watch the government ignore it. Watch hospitals ignore it. Watch people, you know, blame them, say that they deserved it, you know, just completely. Like, they survived all of that. It doesn't make everything that they do okay now, but it did make me so much more empathetic towards that generation of, of, of gay men especially. And lesbians, because they're the ones who was actually taking care of all those men as they were dying. It's what we do. It's true, you do. But I think... I love lesbians. I love lesbians too, man. We should we like, get that love, in there. I love lesbians. <laughs> I really... Yeah. Well, I think that... I think that's... That's really what I'm actually advocating for as we... Yeah. As I talk about, like, what we maybe didn't learn from the AIDS crisis, what we could learn now uh, to protect the most vulnerable in our community... And I and it's like the reason I want to do this whole project query to begin with, which is like, hey, there are it's a there are a lot of queer spaces now. There's there's queer television. There's her story. But I don't know that we always think to have conversations with each other Yeah, and like share like this is what I can do. This is what you know, you can do. I mean, we were both at that convening for Tegan mm-hmm. and Sarah's Sarah for the Tegan and Sarah Foundation and other cool lesbians other cool lesbians and their foundation exists essentially to do what I'm talking about which yeah. is like bring the brain trust together and it is what you were talking about at the beginning of the episode too about um you know the way that like I mean Twitter alone mm-hmm. as a way to connect the queer community so that I even know you yeah. you know like this is a this is a thing that we can use now and I think if we do talk to each other and not necessarily, you know, I've spent the I've spent the last 
15 years or whatever of my comedy life, like I said, talking to straight people and cis people and being like, care about us. And I really think in Donald Trump era that a really important thing is to talk to each other and have more in-group conversations. I like that. I think that's a very, very good point. It makes us feel less alone, makes us feel more empowered, makes us feel more connected, makes us feel more accountable, you know, responsible. I think that's really important. Yeah. Yeah. I love the accountability piece a lot. I mean, I think like we're here, we're queer, like screaming that at other people is what we've been doing and that and we needed to do that. So, and now we're like, hey, we're here. We're, we're, we're queer. Yeah. Let's talk. <laughs> that's, I, that's what I'm advocating as the next yeah. stage. <laughs> I like that. And, it, and it's also what you were talking about, you know, with um, Laverne and Angelica, like this community of trans women that are out there, like Janet Mock, like that are talking mm-hmm. and creating space. Like they're doing what I'm talking about, yep. too. That's all very is, intentional. Yeah. Which is like, um, I guess, spider webbing is what I would call it. You know, like, like. <laughs> Linking up. Yeah. We're stronger together. Uh, I remember somebody had that as a slogan for uh, an election. You know what? There's not much time left, but I have to bring up. So I want to run something by you that Great. came up the other day that I'm just really curious about. I was talking with uh, Eve Ensler, so you know, playwright and creator. I've met Eve. Yes. Okay. So we're, we're talking about trans issues. And she said that the thing that she hears a lot from like feminists is why don't trans women just identify as women? And then, like, they can be part of our movement, part of our fold. Like, why do they insist on kind of, like, othering themselves as trans women? And my jaw kind of fell to the floor. I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, first of all, I've never heard that mentioned no. by anyone. Second of all, it's the it's the people who identify as radical feminists who are in, who loudly and repeatedly have been telling me for years that no matter what I ever do, I can never be a woman. And so, like, that's part of the reason I say, like, well, I'm a trans woman. You know, I accept that there's some difference between me and you. Like, I'm okay with that. As long as I'm in the kind of broader category of women, like, I'm okay with the difference that makes me trans. I was just completely surprised by that. And I was wondering if, like, if that resonates with you at all. I mean, that, to me, that feels... Well, first of all, maybe there's a difference between the two of us, given that, like, uh society culture conditioning treated me as a girl with a bowl cut and you as an adorable boy (laughs) like maybe that was different for us yeah um and that's totally possible but um you know i also know like queer i know i know black lesbians with like this haircut that i have who i would also say probably had like a different yeah that's life Than I had. I mean, that's a lesson of intersectional feminism. Yes. Yeah. So I feel like um, anybody saying full stop, like, if we're talking about, like, you're this and I'm that and that's what makes us different and therefore we can never communicate or we can never be the same thing or whatever, like, exactly. That is it. Who does that serve? Literally, yeah. who does that serve? Yeah. The the points of intersection are what help us talk to each other no matter what the fuck we're doing. Yeah. Like if we're ordering french fries. You know, it's it's just ridiculous, I think, to focus on that. And, and it's also okay, but I just mean like you and I are not the same. And I don't assume that they're – I'm not the same as Rhea, my right. wife. We have so many different experiences and we are totally different genders and we are <laughs> – perceived very different in public bathrooms. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, I know, that's that's an irony that always like kills me at the whole trans bathroom debate, is that like I have never once been interrogated in a bathroom, had a second glance. Rhea you gets would, it all the time. You would have to like chaperone Rhea right, in public exactly. bathrooms. Because I have to. So like you, you should be Rhea's chaperone. That's, that just like kills me. Like, and that's also why it's completely unenforceable. Because what are we doing? A genital check? I like, know. And also if we are doing a genital, like are we doing a birth certificate check? Like how far are we willing to go to make sure that our bathrooms are exactly how we want our bathrooms to be? And like meanwhile, I have to pee. Right, exactly. So like do you want me to pee on you while I prove to you that like, I mean, just shut the fuck up. Well, just think about the level of ignorance that's required to actually like hold special sessions in like state houses capital yes. to pass these bills because they think a trans woman looks like Rhea. They think like that's a man trying to get in and they don't know that I'm trans. Well, like, the amount of ignorance. There. It's the same person that thinks that like 
gay marriage leads to pedophilia. Like it's the same thing where you're like, well, these this has I mean, you're you're. This has nothing to do with the other thing. <laughs> You're talking about things that are unrelated. Yeah, exactly. Since one of these is consenting adults <laughs> and it's like about love and one is about abuse and power. And um, so you're talking about nothing similar. Yeah. Um, but but to I, go, I don't want to, I yeah, do yeah. want to say to that Eve Ensler thing that, that you asked. Um, you know what, what, what like offends me about that? Is anybody talking about somebody about wanting somebody else to adjust to adjust their identity so that mm. they can accept them better? Yeah. Like saying, "I need you to be a trans woman," or "I need you to be a woman with no right. preface and no context." <laughs> like, who the fuck do you think you are that you do, can do you have, Like, Eve wasn't that, saying that herself. No, I know. No, no, no. I know. Yes, I'm just saying. Like <laughs> yeah. the people that would say that, yeah. not Eve. No, the people you. that would say that. I just don't know who I don't know who anybody thinks they are that they I, get to patrol other people's identity. I have to say this kind of wider circle that we're part of all these queer women in LA have been so good to me and like no one has ever treated me differently because I'm trans or like not wanted me in their spaces and it really cha- I was so terrified of lesbians because of all the kind of rhetoric I'd encountered online and it was only coming to LA and, and getting to know all of you that made me feel like oh like these are my people. <laughs> yeah, wow. And, and, and I'm really I'm, grateful for that. Oh, I mean I'm like I'm just fucking sorry that that rhetoric exists. Like that's not me. And I and I hope that and I know that you're saying you know that but like yeah. We're sisters. Oh. Thanks, fam. That's why your boobs are so <laughs> stressful. <laughs> Um, okay, on that note. <laughs> so, Jen, this has been such a great conversation. Thank you. Thank you for talking to me. Um, I mentioned at the very beginning before we started rolling that I was going to ask you about a queero of yours, somebody who, like, made you feel supported and that you could be the person that you are. Um, it could be a place. You know, actually, there there is... There's a person that comes to mind, and that's who I'm named after. Jen. Yeah, there was a, there was a woman I met years ago um, named Jen. Back when I was a boy, I had this weird thing where, like, lesbians would sometimes fall for me, and it would really f- mess with their heads. And Jen was the first time that was really strong. She was, like, lesbian was her identity. That's who she was. She'd never been with a man in her life, had no interest in men. And then we met, and we fell for each other. And she couldn't deny that, but it was, like, really disruptive to her life and her identity and who she was. But I admitted to her some of my gender issues and things like that, and she was really um, welcoming and accepting of that and, and was kind of intrigued. And this this stuff inside me that I thought was deserved, like, shame and guilt, she saw as, like, really kind of, like, cool and fascinating. And uh, that really meant a lot to me. So when I went online, I, I just adopted the name Jen after her. Then years later... When I did come out as trans and I kind of like tracked her down and I told her like, hey, like just so you know, like, um, you know, I came out as trans and I've been living this woman for years now. And, and I just want you to know I named myself after you. And she was deeply relieved because she'd like, ne- like it was I, I was such an outlier for her. She could not figure out. <laughs> She's like, oh, now I get it. Like you were always a woman. She's, you know, she saw me as a woman before I did, basically. And that, uh, you know, it's a small act, you know, but it was a really powerful one. That's huge. Yeah. It's huge. You know, I this is like, maybe this is dumb, but um, this is the first time I've ever thought about that you would get to name yourself after somebody yeah. if you wanted to. Yeah. It's, it's really kind of, cool. That's a powerful act. Yeah. 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 Awesome. <laughs> I don't know. That seems really positive. Yeah. I yeah. agree. Awesome. Well, thank you, Jen. Thank you so much. Yeah. yeah. Appreciate this. Let's go find out who we are, who we are. Well, listeners, that's our show. Please remember to rate and review us on iTunes. You can follow me on Twitter at Cameron Esposito. We are recorded by Matt Brousseau, produced by Sierra Catow and Feral Audio. Our theme song is by AW, and you can find them at listentoaw.com. Thanks for listening to Query. Feral Audio. 
Hey, this is Arnie Niekamp from the Improv Fantasy Podcast. Hello from the Magic Tavern. I fell through a dimensional portal behind a Burger King in Chicago into the magical land of Foon, and I started a podcast. Season three has just begun with a brand new adventure to defeat the Dark Lord. If you're a new listener or you've fallen behind, season three is a great jumping on point. And we've got great guests like Justin McElroy. I sound like a fancy college professor. Eight nights. <laughs> Rachel Bloom. You all see my collection of men corpses and one woman. Felicia Day and Colton Dunn. You've seen <coughs> me have intercourse with a variety of species. It's a bummer. Andy Daly. You have the members of Genesis listed, but Phil Collins yeah. has crossed out and then circled and crossed out again. Uh, yes, I have killed Phil Collins twice. Thomas Middleditch. <laughs> Oh, Jesus! I mean, Jazos, <laughs> ruler of the eighth circle. And that's just the beginning. Season three of Hello from the Magic Tavern is out now. Listen in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah.